New Year's Eve, there are a number of different ways in which we could prepare our hearts for the taking of communion and also bringing in the new year. As I think about the new year, it's often an opportunity for a new beginning, uh, to uh, make some resolutions. I know a lot of people don't like to do that. Uh, if you've been with us, you know I, uh, it's a large part of my makeup, and uh, I enjoy uh, making resolutions. And uh, tonight, I want us to think about some opportunities for, for change in our lives. As we look at Ephesians, the theme tonight is as Christians, we're to live differently than a non-believer does. We're to live our lives with a different purpose. That's probably as, as basic and as elementary as one can get when it talks about the Christian life. We are to live our lives for the honor and glory of God. The theme verse is Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul is writing to a very healthy church. This is not like Corinthians. The Ephesians are grounded in the faith. The first three chapters of Ephesians have probably the weightiest doctrine in the New Testament next to the book of Romans. And so the people are well trained, if you will. It's one in which there is a great deal of commitment, and yet Paul addresses these individuals as believers. Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by will of God, to the saints at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's writing to people who are faithful, they're in Christ, they are saints, and he says to them, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. The church has always been plagued with the difficulty of being different from the culture and society around it. We are admonished in Romans chapter 12 that we are not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we are not to be like the Gentiles or the non-believers that are around us, but rather... We are to be different. Their lives are characterized in our text as futile, that is, without purpose or a wrong purpose. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must not walk longer as Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds. That can be understood as aimless, without direction, without a real purpose or significance. They're just kind of going through life without any ultimate ambition or goal. Or it could mean that the goal or ambition they have set before them is an inappropriate one. It's one that is going to prove to be vain. It's going to prove to be empty. It's going to prove to be meaningless. It's going to prove to be disappointing, such as the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So we need a mission or purpose statement and an action plan if we are going to have purpose and meaning in our lives. So our mission or purpose statement is that, first of all, we are to seek to be like God. Ephesians 4.24, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. 
That's our purpose. We will seek to live our lives in truly righteous and holy manner, in true righteousness and holiness. So that is the manner in which we are to be like God. Be holy for I am holy. And then the motivation. Why should we seek to be like God in righteousness and holy manner? The motivation is to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's said repeatedly in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. And the beloved, it's referring to our salvation and having been predestined. Ephesians 1, 12, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.14, it was given as a pledge of our inheritance, referring to the Holy Spirit, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So all of this is to be the praise of his glory. So how are we going to achieve it? Action plan. We will put away our old manner of life. Ephesians 4.22, to put off your old self. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life. So we are to live differently than what we lived prior to our salvation, which was unholy or ungodly. To put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt. And instead, we are to adopt an entirely new lifestyle and to put on the new self, which is holy, in true righteousness and holiness. I'm moving quite quickly here because I'm going to slow down in just a little bit. Strategy. Godliness or godlikeness is not going to just happen. It requires a plan of action and strategy to carry it out. It requires purpose. It requires thought. It requires activity. It requires a great deal of effort on our part. It isn't just going to happen naturally. It's not going to happen without a tremendous amount of intentionality. Thus, I want to talk about resolutions and and so on. It isn't just going to be natural to us. We have to work at it if we are going to be able to do this. So what's the strategy? First, we will not be governed by our emotions or instincts any longer. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The desires that we had prior to our salvation are described in two ways. They are corrupt and they are deceitful. The desires themselves, when you put them in a large category, are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. What the non-believer wants out of life is not necessarily a bad thing. Okay? Uh, what does a non-believer want? What do, what do people want out of life? They want to be happy. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. They want to be safe. They want to be secure. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe or secure or healthy or have one's needs met 
and have provision. There's nothing wrong with those desires. The problem is that they're described as, as corrupted and deceitful. The problem is the object of those desires. What it is that the non-believer thinks is going to bring about those things. Namely, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy, but what is going to bring happiness? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be loved and have a relationship with others. But the question is, what should that relationship look like and what is it really to be loving? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be secure, but where is that security to be found? Not in wealth, but in God. So there's nothing wrong with the desires. It's that they are corrupted and that they are deceitful because they lead us down a primrose path. They don't lead us to where we want to be. Those things that the non-believer thinks is going to make them happy ultimately makes them miserable. The things that ultimately they think are going to make them secure are going to prove to be empty, vain, that there is no security in financial security, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the deceitful desires are a problem. Instead, we will be governed or ruled by a new thought process, Ephesians 4.23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Consistently in the word of God, the means by which we are going to bring about transformation or change is depicted as a renewal of our minds. Ephesians 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It starts up here. It starts with our intellect. It starts with our reasoning thought process. And moves from there. In this new thought process, at the very, very beginning, is this determination in which we will say no to the evil one and say yes to the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. This passage is a series of contrasts, of putting off and putting on. The change that is to be manifest, change from before we were Christian to after we were Christian. So instead of giving opportunity to the evil one, we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit by resisting him. So put it in other words, we resist the, Holy, the evil one, and we yield to the Holy Spirit, which is exactly opposite to what the non-believer does. He resists the things of God and yields himself to the evil one. This will result in our lives being patterned after God 
and not after the world. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That's the concluding thought. So propositional statement. We need to enter into a thoughtful process whereby we remove sinful practices from our lives and replace them with practices that are truly righteous and holy. So it's not a matter just of putting certain things off or ridding ourselves of certain sins, but they are to be replaced with something positive. They're to be replaced with something better, something that is antithetical to what we are taking off in each one of these examples. So in Ephesians 4.22, we put off the old self. In verse 24, we put on the new. So we're putting off sin, putting on righteousness. So what I am offering tonight is a series of biblical resolutions to implement putting off sinful practices and replacing them with righteous practices. These are not exhaustive. I call them biblical because they all come from the text. I just put them in the form of a resolution as opposed to the, the charge or admonition they are. In each one of these, there's a command in Scripture. So I just put them in the form of resolution that we'll follow God's commands, that that would be our purpose. And these five are illustrative of putting off the old and putting on the new. First, I will no longer give in to the evil one, but rather yield to the Holy Spirit. These sound very self-help, self-oriented. I I wrestled with whether I wanted to write in each of these, I will by God's grace no longer give in to the evil one, because it all starts with God's grace, and it's to the glory of God's grace. I'm assuming that. Okay, so please understand that. In each one of these, I'm assuming that we are going to rely upon God's grace. We're going to call upon him. We're going to pray. We're not just going to try to do this by our own willpower, etc., etc., etc. But I want to focus on what the admonition is. These admonitions do not come every time with the grace of God. They come as commands, so I decide to keep them in that framework. So first... I will no longer give in to the evil one, but rather yield to the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.27, give no opportunity to the devil, but yield to the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. God is grieved when we run contrary to the Spirit's leading and direction in our life. Give no opportunity to the devil. The context of that is be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. To fail to heed that admonition, you are giving opportunity for the evil one to be at work. If you fail to follow that admonition and decide that you're going to start harboring a grudge, harbor bitterness, you are not going to quickly forgive others. You are not going to allow yourself to be abused or misused or whatever the case may be. But if you say no to that, all you're doing is giving an opportunity for Satan then to do greater harm 
and bring about a greater frustration. Whatever the cause of that anger is, if it's bitterness, if it's a problem with other people, you're just allowing Satan to work. Instead, you are not to grieve the Holy Spirit by making the Holy Spirit unhappy, by quelching or squelching his, his work. What do I mean by yield to the Holy Spirit? Simply, when you are convicted, you allow the Holy Spirit to reign in your life. When you're convicted, before we sin, we know we shouldn't do it. We're contemplating. Our thought life is changing. We have desires. They're sinful desires. They're corrupt. We're looking for peace. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for fun. We're looking for all these things. There's nothing wrong with that except what we think is going to bring it to pass. And if we choose to sin, the Holy Spirit it convicts us, tells us we should not do that. That's the point where we should yield to this Holy Spirit and not to the evil one. We should ask for help. We should seek to obey Christ. Okay, I will no longer give in to the evil one, but yield to the Holy Spirit. Number two, I will get rid of lying and deception and replace it with speaking the truth. I'll get rid of lying and deception. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Putting away falsehood. And that could be understood in two ways, and I think both of them are appropriate from the text. The first is, I put away the lies that I've been taught. The evil one is a deceiver. And first of all, I I need to put away those thoughts that I have been taught that are wrong. Okay, Um, Sex outside of marriage is not a good thing. It's deceitful to tell you that that's the way to joy and happiness and strangely enough in our culture and society and actually is a good thing. There's a, a new norm in our culture. I just read an interesting article of all places USA Today because it was talking about uh, immorality and what is causing less marriages to occur in our society. And I thought it was really interesting what uh, their conclusions were. But I, I tell you that there is this notion that sexual immorality is a good thing. That living together before you're married is a good thing. You can find out if you really like each other, you can find out if you're compatible. You can find out if you, if you want to make this a lasting relationship. And, and it's taunted as actually better than, more desirable than, making this commitment of marriage. And that's just one example out of a whole host 
of situations in our society in which we're fed a bunch of malarkey as to what is the better way, which is the happy way, etc. So I need to put away the lies that I've been told. And then secondly, I need to put away the deception and lies that I tell others. The deception and lies that I tell others. That is a huge category. And when we think about honesty, we can talk about taxes, we can talk about so many different realms of life. But tonight, I focus just on one. And that is transparency. Honesty. Forthrightness. We need to be honest with others about the misery that our sinfulness has brought to pass in our own lives. As Christians, I think we are very deceptive because we don't want people to know our baggage. We don't want people to know our problems. We don't want people to know our sinfulness. Most often when people come and talk to me, their biggest concern is no one else is going to know, are they? Nobody's going to find out about this. You're not going to tell anybody, are you? And of course, I'm not. But you see, what makes the Bible so unique and so powerful is the honesty and the transparency in which God's people proclaim their misery and heartache over their sin. David does not glorify adultery or murder. But David speaks of the heartache and misery. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. That guile, that deception. For when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was turned to the draught of summer. Say, La, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. David talks about his heartache, his misery, about Nathan saying, thou art the man. He talks about his anguish. He talks in Psalm 51 about how he doesn't want the Holy Spirit to remove from him. He doesn't want to have the throne taken away. David is miserable and miserable. The way that we combat the world's deception is for Christians to be honest and say, I tried it and it's bad news. And to be honest with our own struggles so that Christians understand 
what the Christian life is all about, that there are struggles, there are hardships, there are difficulties, etc., etc., etc. So, quit deceiving and practice telling the truth. Motivation. Life is no longer just about me, but about us. For we are members one of another. We ought to care about one another's well-being. And so I'm going to make this narrow. But rather than being so concerned about my reputation, I ought to be more concerned about somebody else's spiritual health and well-being. So I should tell them when I see them heading down a wrong path, not just in a judgmental way, but in a loving and caring way, you know, I've walked that path. And let me tell you about some of the problems that that's created for me. Let me tell you what that has done. You know, I, I get to see some of those, those things. I can share secondhand stories that other people have told me, but much more valuable if other people would share those stories themselves. Thirdly, I will no longer be a taker but a self-provider. I will no longer be a taker. Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal. Again, it's easy to make that so, you know, I'm not going to rob a bank. I'm not going to stick up a grocery store. Well, that's all good. You know, it's probably not too many of us going to do that anyway. But there are other ways, other ways that we can take from other Things that are not rightly ours. We can steal not just money, time. Take people's time. Intellectual property, plagiarize. Plagiarize ideas. Any resource that someone has, I can try to have expended on myself rather than on them. So instead of being a taker, being a needy person, okay, so that goes so far as when I come to church, I'm always looking for someone to meet my need rather than my meeting somebody else's need. I view things through my own Microscope, my, my, my own perspective, okay? I, I sit and say, now what is there in this for me? And if there's nothing in this for me, then what good is it? Instead of being needed, I'll be a self-provider. Notice Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So instead of stealing, he puts that off and puts on doing honest work with his own own hands. Motivation. So that instead of being takers, we can be givers, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
What a transformation. Going from a place where I am willing to take from somebody else what is rightfully theirs and is not mine, to now I'm willing to share what is rightfully mine and doesn't belong to them. So I'm going to become self-sufficient with the intention of being a help to somebody else. That means, in practical realms, that in every situation, we are going to try to be leaders. Servants. Servant leadership. Of seeking to use whatever talents, resources, or positions that we have in order not to aggrandize ourselves or simply to feed ourselves, but to help other people. Number four. I will get rid of hurtful speech and replace it with helpful speech. I will get rid of hurtful speech. Let no corrupt, corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupting is, it would be anything that is degrading or tearing somebody else down, putting other people down. But it isn't just insults, certainly includes insults, but it's anything that's demoralizing, anything that just saps the strength out of somebody else. Something that discourages somebody else from doing what is right or good or holy. And it may not even be the intent of discouraging from being good or right or holy, but it's the critical spirit that somebody says, oh, what's the point? What's the use? It's where, in the book of Colossians, it tells parents that they're not to provoke. It says, fathers, provoke not your children. That the idea is that the child is trying and they just say, what's the use? Because their parents are so demanding. They're such perfectionists that the child says, they're never going to be pleased. They're never going to be happy. The deception and the way in which we need to think is that there is a tendency, according to 1 Corinthians 13, about the, the whole love, love Puffs, does not puff itself up. Many times, the way that people try to make themselves look better is by making other people look worse. That's wrong. Or that some people feel better by making other people feel worse. Some husbands view themselves as powerful and they like to make their wives cry. Some do it physically. Some want to inflict pain on others so that they appear more macho or stronger. That's our society. That's the non-believing world. But that's not to be us. So instead of hurtful, damaging, degrading speech that is going to deter people from doing what is right, Instead, we'll replace it with helpful speech. But only such as is good for building up. Edification, good word, edifice, a building. To build up, 
to make stronger, to help their resolve, to encourage. Rather than find fault, tell people what you appreciated. Rather than tell them what they did wrong, tell them what they did right. Rather than mock, compliment. We were talking around our lunch table the other day, and we, we were talking about Pastor Vivona. And we said, you know, he is a great encourager. The way that he looks at things so positively and has a good word for other people. I've appreciated our brother's presence. That's a great way to be. We need to be not just encouragers in the sense, it's not about flattery. Because flattery, according to the Proverbs, is manipulation. It's not buttering people up. It's not that. It's trying to strengthen them, help them. So I replace hurtful speech with helpful speech. And then fifthly, I'll get rid of a spirit of retribution and replace it with a spirit of forgiveness. I will get rid of a spirit of retribution. Ephesians 4.31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander put away from you along with all malice. That's all retribution. That's all getting even. That's all about making somebody else pay for what they've done to me. Bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, and malice. I will replace it with a spirit of forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. So instead of bitter, you're kind. Instead of anger and clamor, you're tender-hearted. You think about how these things affect other people. You forgive one another. Motivation that we may treat others the way Christ has treated us as God in Christ has forgiven you. Conclusion. I will be like God, my Heavenly Father. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Be like God. He is our Father, our Heavenly Father. And so, as in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That they see this transformation of life and character, and it brings honor and glory to God. When the scripture says that we are to do these things to the honor and glory of God, you see, it isn't just a matter of simply saying, praise God. 
or speaking of God in exalted ways, although there's nothing wrong with saying praise God and speaking with God in exalted ways, but what it is, it's a demonstration of how the Spirit of God has really brought about a transformation in us. And that transformation is a, is a wonderful transformation. It's a glorious transformation. Because it results in everything the world wants. It results in gladness. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Beneficial is the man. Blessed is the man who's poor in spirit. For his is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. What is blessed turns out to be quite different than what the world thinks is blessed. Security is far different. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, but lay up for yourselves treasures on, uh, in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. Security looks different. Peace looks different. Prosperity looks different. But it takes an entirely new way of thinking. It's not easy. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The world is trying to put you in a box. And there are all these pressures to bear. And why I'm I'm going on this tonight is I'm back to Reading your Bible through in a year. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Christian thinking. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. They aren't. They aren't. And there are so few places where you are going to get the kind of thinking that I'm describing tonight. Even Christians don't usually talk and think that way. Most Christians are not a help to one another. You know? Rather than rejoice the Lord always again, I say rejoice, there's murmuring and complaining. And guess what happens when you murmur and complain? Other people start joining in and murmuring and complaining with you. That's corrupting speech. That's degrading speech. That's hurtful speech. That's helping people head in the wrong direction. When you complain, all of a sudden, they complain. But when you speak of the Lord's goodness, then all of a sudden, they speak of the Lord's goodness. But it's not easy. So, one of the things I... I'm going to recommend to you tonight beyond um, reading your Bible through a year is good reading. And I recommend the following book as a spiritual help in molding our thinking, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. These are very, very short chapters. You can 
easily read them in one sitting. They're usually a page, or two pages, three pages at most. Uh, but they talk about humility, humility, they talk about wisdom, they talk about a whole lot of, of, of virtues from ways that you're not going to get them anywhere else. I find these things so hard to communicate. Sunday night, I was trying to depict how vastly different the world is today, even from the world I grew up in. And how much more difficult that is. You know, so that I was talking about how, like, on Sunday nights, they're... they're there wasn't a lot of other options other than going to church. And, you know, the, there weren't a lot of options on Sunday morning. You know, I mean, you didn't have to choose between were you going to be a part of the soccer team or you were going to travel or because those things didn't exist. But that's how much the world is influencing us. And, and I say this not because there's something magical about going to church. My concern is that there is such little time proportionately. You know, you think about being in, you know, we have a long sermon in the morning. I know that. It's 40 minutes. We have 40 minutes at night, and then we have a half hour on, on Wednesday night. But think about that. That doesn't even quite add up to two hours. Two hours out of a week of being bombarded with an entirely different way of thinking and acting and living. So we need to feed ourselves apart from being in a church service, apart from being, it just isn't enough. Sunday morning isn't enough. Wednesday night isn't enough. Sunday night isn't enough. It's not even about church. For my and your mind to be renewed, we've really got to take some steps to purge ourselves from wrong thinking and wrong desires into holy thinking and holy desires. And as we go to communion tonight, I like to use it as an opportunity for us to follow in the example of the Lord Jesus in committing himself to the Father for our benefit. May we commit ourselves to the Father for the benefit of others. And Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. And in that same statement, he said, I sanctify myself. He set himself apart to the truth. He spoke the truth. He learned the truth. He knew the truth. And as we go to communion, may we rededicate ourselves tonight. And may it start with our minds. And may we work hard at following God's truth. This time we're going to take communion. So.